You're listening to the Super Week Super Weekly Supercast. I'm your host, Evan. And I am your host, Doc Chris Begley Bag. And I am your host, Mikey Paul Jonathan Davis Tasjian. <laughs> and today we have a very special guest with us. Hi. My name's Sean. <laughs> Hi, Sean. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Sean. Hi. You might know Sean from projects like Billow, Negative Space, and I believe Vanity Crystal. Is that also... Uh, yeah, the Billow thing is actually my friend's tape label, but merging appear on a compilation that they did. Um, Vanity Crystal is like uh, kind of, kind of, kind of my DJ name, and also like uh, a like kind of sound art noise project I do at the same time. Yeah, I was listening to the live set you sent me on YouTube. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I did that for uh, my friends. My friend in the first lockdown here did a kind of like week of i guess what the equivalent would be of like public access tv uh but all online and it was like <laughs> lots of punks doing like tv dj sets and stuff uh and it was like a project that i'd always kind of had on the back burner and just kind of like got forced to do in like a week's time which was good like i worked pretty well under pressure i feel like i put it on while i was making breakfast this morning and it was fairly soothing i feel like you know i want to yeah. say it was at least soothing for me it was a nice like soothing way to ease into my day so yeah pretty cool yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And I also want to say thanks for giving us all those very concise corrections right out of the gate instead of us <laughs> getting emails from mystery people after we it's post okay. the episode. No worries. <laughs> yeah. Well, to circle back, Sean, I probably haven't seen you in IRL person in like... Three years? Four years? We saw each other when you came on tour with uh, mm -hmm. Modern Baseball. Right. I came to the London show and we hung out a little bit, but that was definitely the last time I've seen you in person. That was a hundred percent the last. Oh time. wow, that was such a busy night. I didn't even I didn't even know you were there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like at the O2 Forum. Yeah, the really big. big or what was venue. the London show? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you got to see us when we did our grand finale. Um, let me think. All the chaos that was happening. At one point, Mike Bell threw a really expensive designer jacket into the crowd and people got into a fist fight over it. I got lifted <laughs> up on uh, our driver Summer's shoulders when he was dressed in an adult Pikachu costume yes. for my final guitar solo, while also our other guitar player, Andrew, was lifted up on Mike Bell's shoulders for that part of the song. And I think during the modern baseball set, if I remember correctly, I came out dressed as Batman with a mask that I got from a McDonald's that was actually, I think, a Lego Batgirl yes. mask to do the encore with them when we were playing when you were young. So it was a, a fun bit of chaos on that stage. I actually had completely forgotten that part, but yeah, you did do that. <laughs> also, I distinctly remember Chris Deem singing like three songs, but wearing like either short shorts or just like boxer shorts. Yep. So uh, that's yes. short shorts. Yep. Yeah. A beautiful sight, as I'm sure we can all attest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that was a pact between he and I where we were offered free clothing and we were allowed to select like our favorite choices out of it. And he and I, we made a pact to get the shortest possible shorts that they had, and we would each wear them. But when I got them, I was too uncomfortable with how short they were, so I chickened out and I wouldn't wear them. And I'm a man who wore a Speedo on stage for years, so they were that short. Damn. Yeah, and then Chris Deem was bold enough to do it. He's got, he's got a great pair of legs. What can I say? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Chris Deem's a, an attractive man. Yeah. I can't believe that was, like, beginning of 2017, yeah? I came from, like, I think a show I played to come to that as well. I had to, like, literally chip it the whole way across London <laughs> to hang out. 
But I'm really glad I did. It was super fun. Damn. How long were you in Philly? The legal amount of time that you are allowed to be there, basically. <laughs> I had what they call a B2 visa, mm-hmm. which allows you to extend your stay legally like one time. I wanted to like be there longer, but like I think it just legally wasn't really possible unless I got some insanely well-paying job that basically pays for you to like reside there which uh, my skills at the time probably didn't like demand that mm-hmm. much. But yeah, I just extended it like one time. So probably the time we hung out the most, I was on like the nine month stay, but I'd come back and forth like a couple of times. Right. Yeah. And you were a brief, uh, not a resident of Big Mamas. Were you subletting a room? I forget. What was your time nah, there? I was, I actually literally was just hanging out there like all the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I crashed originally at um, a place in South Philadelphia. I won't remember the exact address of it now. It's near where Hardina is. That's where I spent like most of the long stay. And then I was staying in West Philadelphia after that. But I knew a decent chunk of the Big Mamas people through Algernon, who I'd met when they toured the UK the first time. My old band's played a few shows with them which is kind of like the seed of why i was there i guess like it's how i met Mm -hmm. all those people so i just kind of got to know people i was in a new place and i was like really keen to just like hang out and also to play music because i was really missing playing music it was sick you played on the song we're gonna listen to today and uh, there was one other one that you played on it was me you and mikey and we recorded it like live to tape in the studio and i have really fond memories i was gonna say i've never heard that one (laughs) i remember this one but i don't i've never heard that one (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't even know if i heard that one yet so (laughs) yeah well we will be completing it this year that one i think it was like working title was called like thunderbolt and it was just like super loud and distorted and oh, I had a ton of delay on yeah. my guitar. Yeah, I do remember this. So part of doing the podcast is we have like 30 songs we haven't finished. There's like 20 <laughs> something we have and about 30 we haven't. So it, it's to motivate us to finish those songs because that was a really cool experience for me. You and I and the three of us wrote a song together, you know, yeah. out of the blue. And it was just like a lot of fun to do it. Bizarrely, I was actually thinking about this like kind of right before you messaged me. I was just thinking about like that studio and like how fun that was to like spontaneously kind of write music where I think my old band lived in a different city to me. So kind of writing new stuff was always kind of like a process, a process that also moved quite slowly. So it was like really refreshing to just be like, just play on this thing and it to sound good as well. We were all learning and uh, it was just to have fun and, you know, experiment and i mean i still look at recording today as i'm experimenting and i'm still learning i never you know know what i'm gonna do and and writing music as well is just like i try to just shit out an emotion and like that's what i'm feeling in the moment (laughs) and i don't know if your process is similar but i'm just like this is what i felt it's interesting revisiting these songs like years later because i'm like wow okay this was like eight years ago i don't remember what i was feeling at that very moment but like it's cool to also have a different perspective and fuck around with it differently so Who knows what everyone will hear in the future when we release this song called Thunderbolt that we've been talking about. Who knows what that's going (laughs) to end up being. I just remember I wanted to yell on top of it. Maybe I'll send it to you too. You could shout on top of it as well. Yeah. Or sing or whatever. For some reason, like in my mind, I seem to remember it wasn't like a doom metal song, but it had like that vibe of just like loud, like really, really, really loud. I wonder if Corey had that big white emperor cab at that time and you were playing through that or if you were just playing through like one of those giant PV rigs that we had laying around the studio like Pete's. Definitely being in Philadelphia was like the first time that I I had played through anything larger than like kind of my thigh, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) I think, which was a nice experience. 
I briefly did another band in Philly with Christian from Congenital Death and Mm -hmm. Jeff, who now I think is primarily famous for making donuts in Philly, uh, Dotty's Donuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we did this metal (laughs) band called Human Achievement. He just let me use like his gigantic sun cab for it. And I think I only ever had to turn it up to like one. And it was still like, (laughs) it's still easily like the loudest band I've ever done. Like it was fucking crazy. I would have loved to continue doing that one really cool man well maybe you know at the end of quarantine in 2027 you can come back and you guys can do a reunion show because (laughs) it's gonna be itching for fucking live music i'll tell you what the two shows we played uh it was like right when jeff was um testing the donut recipe so he would just have donuts like all the time in the back of his (laughs) car um and we played one show where he just was throwing donuts at people. <laughs> like, <laughs> a lot of powdered sugar. That's sick. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. I guess you were quite busy uh, in your time spent in Philly, you know, no moments wasted. Um, yeah, I, I tried to stay busy. I think one of the things about not really having like a fixed job that sort of has its pros and cons. I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. quite bored because I didn't really know what I was doing with myself yet. And I wouldn't say I was like as musically adept as probably I am now. So I think like a lot of stuff about self-production and stuff like that, I hadn't really like wrapped my head around yet. I just remember having this like absolutely burning desire to like start a million bands, which sort of paid off and sort of didn't at the same time. I definitely would have liked to have been more active, but I think I stayed pretty busy while I was there. You knew a small amount of people when you first came to the city, you met a million more and then, you know, you were able to start bands and play on recordings and jam with multiple people. And I feel like to, you know, live in a city for roughly nine months, that's pretty impressive. You know, it takes a lot of people a lot longer to come out of their shell. Like a few episodes ago, we talked to our friend Austin and Austin moved to the city and, you know, it was a a slow roll for him to get started. And then I guess he sublet the warehouse for like a few months and, you know, met all those people. And then Yeah, I mean, I really think the key was Big Mamas. Literally walking into a space where like everyone is wanting to play music like 24-7 and there also happens to be like this fucking huge studio is like an experience I hadn't really had at that time. So I definitely think that I was pretty lucky. I think the first night I ever came to Philly, like I came to Big Mamas and was like, oh, right, cool. This is amazing. Was that your first time in the States? The first time you had come or was that your first time in Philly? It was my first time in Philly. Um, I was on kind of like a long trip up the east coast basically and i'd been like a couple of other places and then obviously i'd done like kind of like child holidays to like tampa and stuff like that um but yeah a pretty different vibe i think yeah quite (laughs) do you like florida uh i honestly don't remember a lot about it i went to the fest Mm. like twice which i don't think is a very representative like yeah so that's basically like my review is i think i went to like gainesville which is like is not really like the same as florida yeah florida would be a much cooler state if uh it was just massive groups of punk rock bands jamming out all the time and uh horrifying porta potties everywhere although in, in a lot of ways it is like horrifying porta potties everywhere yeah before we get uh any further into it maybe let's take a listen to the song i I know we talked all about the other song that hasn't been released yet that you know listeners if you're paying attention you'll hear perhaps one day when we finish it but in the meantime you recorded on this song a song called get off the internet you know this was i think probably the first time got to play music with you do you remember the experience of making this song at all i know yeah i just came like one weekday in like the afternoon 
I think. And it was basically just like, I remember learning it like super, super quickly. You'd written like a pretty simple song and then we just oh, made yeah. it like as loud and fucked up as possible. Yeah, I remember this song, Get Off the Internet. It's like a bit more on the pop punk punk spectrum. I played mm. drums on it, which I'm looking at now and I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Actually, I do remember that now. Yeah. And Joe and I play guitar live. I, uh, yeah, this is starting to click into place for me too. Let's take a listen. This song's called Get Off the Internet. Oh yeah, that's that's my influence there for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the internet is a terrible place often and uh it can be quite overwhelming and that time, you know, I thought it was like really cool for people to be like, Yeah, you know what, fuck it. I'm not gonna have an iPhone, I'm gonna go back to the flip phone and I'm not gonna go online and like essentially live the Mikey Tajan lifestyle, but fuck flip phones, I'm going brick phone. <laughs> Motorola Razor is the way forward. Oh, well they're oh, back, man. aren't they? They have smart flip phones now, too? Oh, sick. <laughs> the screen bends on them. Oh, wow. Oh, what wow. Are the, we live in a time of marvels. <laughs> kind of at that time. I don't know if Instagram was out or whatever, if it was just Facebook I, think, I was thinking about. but like, I think it had like just sort of become like more widely used. But it was like mm -hmm. that kind of point where like everyone's cameras hadn't really like caught up to the concept yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I just remember there was one specific person who they were just so into like their online persona, you know, and like the way mm -hmm. that they looked and the way that they presented themselves to the world on the Internet. And like me looking through that lens, I'm just like, this is not you. This is not the person yeah. that I know. And like this song for me was like, yo, fuck that. Why is this the way that? you're doing this like just take pictures and be yourself on the internet like you don't have to change who you are and then you know having that other friend who got rid of their internet connection completely and we're like i'm going off the grid and shit i was just like yeah that's the way to do it and i think at that moment in time that's where i was feeling about this song yeah i think it's like a sentiment that i guess like only over time i've increasingly sort of like come to relate to i think it's really easy for people to kind of like drop into that thing where you start to like build an online persona for yourself where you like don't relate to it I definitely think that there's been points where I've like kind of thought about like what 
I'm using Instagram for and like I really liked using Twitter at one point and I think I started to sort of realize that it was sort of like feeding into making myself feel totally crazy. Yeah, I went through a similar process recently. It's like the criticism of or having some self-reflection about it is really valuable. I think especially for our specific sort of intersection of a generation where people who are older than us, like this is just like a thing that appeared late in their life. Mm. So like they don't really understand it and it isn't really their most significant way of social interaction or representing themselves. And then for people younger than us, it's like, this is just a state of life. Like this is just how the world operates. But we have this sort of mixing zone where it was first introduced and it fundamentally changed how we were growing up. Like when I was 13, I remember the first few people getting cell phones and all you could do then was like play snake on it and make phone calls. But still that level of access was something that we just never had before. And then it escalating so quickly to a point where we could just create a persona, like you guys were saying, that doesn't need to be us. There's no real verifiable way for anyone who doesn't know us personally to break through it and know who we really are. And so it's just the expectation of everyone having their own sort of uh, light cat fishing towards the world where they're just (laughs) pretending to to be whatever they want to be. Yeah, definitely. I think as someone who kind of primarily as an adult has sort of like tried to use the internet just to be like, okay, here's art I make, here's music I make. I'm not super comfortable about the entire world knowing my personal life. I think that's become increasingly difficult and made using social media like Instagram increasingly worthless. It's so geared towards buying a thing now that trying to present art and music is like really kind of almost pointless unless you're like Mm -hmm. kind of doing a bunch of shit to like game the algorithm of it. Yeah, and that's just a different process now. I mean, that's not the world of gaining fans and making connections with people. It's uh, gaming the algorithm, just like outdoing the robots that determine what human beings actually get to see. Yeah, 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 definitely. I love that I can fart around online and find music that somebody from Korea made that is like my new favorite music that I've ever heard. And I think that's totally amazing and I appreciate that part. But I also feel like for a lot of us, it's like screaming into a void, you know? It's just like every single aspect of the world it's toxic in a way you know like i don't it's i think like one of the most worthwhile things that i guess i've learned uh my job at the moment is i work for thrill jockey records but like i'm one of like their european staff and i remember like when i first kind of joined i just like co self-pressed my current band's first record and sold like 300 copies and like didn't do that much promotion for it. And then when we go on tour, we'd like sell stuff as well. And I was like, okay, this is working pretty well. But I was always like, I wonder what a sort of independent label at that level, like what the kind of leap is in like what they can do and stuff like that. And since working there for like quite a long time, I've really kind of come to sort of understand that like everyone, unless you're one of the big major labels is just in the same boat. Everyone is sort of like throwing stuff at a wall, hoping it will work because no one really knows how to promote music anymore or how to be louder than whatever is really big on TikTok, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is this sort of saturation point that we've reached. It's like the ultimate sort of free market in a way where theoretically it should be great because it's so easy for anybody to just jump in. Like the cost of startup is basically nothing now. Yeah. But then there's also the other end of that where everyone is just like whatever they produce is out there on the same level and it's just like all noise it all is like so cumulative that it's hard to kind of pick things out that you were looking for like Evan was saying like you can find a great band from Korea but if you have like very specific parameters and you have a very specific thing in mind as a dedicated music consumer then you can find what you're looking for 
but that's not the bulk of the world. That's the bulk of the listeners who are out there. And that is a good question, especially for smaller labels that don't have those major gears that uh, really larger labels yeah. have. How do you find the listeners who aren't the ones who are actively looking, but are people who do want to listen to music? Totally. And I think one of the other things that's like really weird about this moment is Bandcamp as a tool is great. It's really, really cool that it exists. But if you really boil it down, it's still completely centralizing where everyone can get their music in the same way. Obviously, like it doesn't have the same sort of nefarious kind of feel to it that like Spotify or something does. It's still sort of centralizing everyone's music into one place. And it's like, okay, well, the, what happens when that goes? I'm sure everyone here like sort of remembers the point at which MySpace was like the only place anyone would ever put their music. And now a lot of the music that was on that platform just got deleted. Like it just disappeared and like no one has backups for it. No one ever thought that it would disappear, you know? Well, that's fortunate for me because all of my solo tapping and slap bass material is now gone. So oh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad nobody can find that. <laughs> yeah, I too have some very embarrassing like stoner rock teenage bands that disappeared off the internet. So in many ways, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, merciful. But yeah, that's the same thing too with things like Spotify, like streaming services like that. People don't own media anymore. And there's a, a certain safety in like, I have the vinyl record. This is mine. I can put this on whenever I want or whatever physical media. Whereas at any point, like for instance, Kanye, like he had released a single and then within a few weeks just secretly took off the original audio and put like a new set of uh, lyrics yeah. up. He did it to a whole album. He fucked with it like four or five times. Weirdly, I was actually listening to that record like a couple of days ago and there's a track at the end of it that I never knew like existed until like, yeah. then he just like threw it on. Which in many ways is, is like interesting for on the artist side of it. It's like people often ask for things like on Twitter, like, can we just have an edit button for tweets when I mess up like some mm. punctuation or something? The other end of that is like that all could just easily disappear and then people just never have access to the original thing that they maybe fell in love with or that they actually wanted and it can just be changed at any time. And, you know, imagine if uh, Da Vinci could have done that with the Mona Lisa or something, you know, like how different <laughs> art history would look and how different our culture would look if it was so easily editable. Yeah, I always think about um, being a teenager who stole a lot of online music and how there's this sort of uniform experience if you downloaded like a shitty MP3 and it would have like the pops and the clicks and stuff. <laughs> so many people got used to like a pop being in a certain place and it's like that's not naturally supposed to be there but hundreds and thousands of people probably kind of anticipate it being on that version of that song right dude yeah before i owned the sublime greatest hits record <laughs> oh yeah the version of what i got had like a big pop right in the beginning uh where the drum beat is yeah and it lined up with the song i could still hear it in my brain today like i listened to it so many times because you know i was like 10 or 11 at this time and then you know eventually when I had my own income, I went out and I bought the Sublime Greatest Hits CD. You're like, where's the pop? It, yeah, it wasn't there. And I was like, wait, that's not part of the song. I also really appreciated how on those programs, people would upload their own songs and just call it like, come original by 311 and it would just like not be that song and it would just be like all sorts of other music which I was able to find at a very young age I found some DIY punk bands that had done that and like I went to go see them at like firehouses around me and stuff because I was like oh shit this band's from Pennsylvania like that's really cool that's and wild I like their song there was a band called the Berlin Project that I loved when I was really young growing up that's how I found them was like again probably a sublime song they had like a vague <laughs> 
Wiggly Ska song and they called it a Sublime song and I was like, this isn't this. And I, I guess, figured out how to find what it actually was. You know, I guess that worked in their favor. And now that I'm thinking about that, that's so fucking wild. Yeah, it's bizarre that I have that experience with being like 12 and downloading like a Linkin Park song, but the Linkin Park song is not a Linkin Park song, right? Mm -hmm. I never followed that through to like seeing the actual band that is on the recording. That's such like an, another level of like that experience. Well, another one of those bands is a band called Punchline. Do you remember them? Not really, no. I could be wrong. I think they were like a Victory Records band at one point, and they like... Oh, wait, yeah. I kind of remember this band, yeah. Wait, I think they toured again in the last few years. Yeah, no, they've I'm been I'm pretty sure I did sound for them at Boot and Saddle. That's the thing, is like, they were one of those early bands, too, that the MP3 was named something different, and that's how I heard them for the first time, is it was probably like called Blink-182 song or something that they changed their name to or whatever just like some pop punk shit that i was trying that's to wild. illegally download and that's how i found them too but it was, they probably got a deal off that yeah it's crazy i do think that that at that time that's like such a creative use of new technology like damn dude if i was making music around that time that's how i would do it i guess there's like versions of that now i definitely <laughs> like see a lot of stuff that's like soundcloud style it'll be people making stuff in like the style of an artist and it's basically sort of like showing off that they can like produce stuff to like that level mm -hmm. which is wild in its own way to like kind of perfect your skill at sounding like someone else is i've always found like a little nuts mm -hmm. there is a great youtube video that i came across the other day that's similar to that where someone took all of the major musical motifs from legend of zelda ocarina of time and mm -hmm. turned it into a prog rock album and they did like <laughs> a i think it's like a 45 minute medley of all of them and it sounds like very much like that perfect late 70s like the death of prog rock style where it's like so overproduced and over layered and it's some of the best music listening i've had <laughs> in a long while I always wonder about who has the time to make that stuff, like where I, I barely have the time to like do my own projects that like I love making. And it's like, who has the time to fucking make like a prog rock Zelda record? <laughs> yeah, they, they seem like some real Berkeley student type people. Mm. Uh, not to mention a pandemic definitely helps with that too. Any, well, any sort of well, forced yeah, quarantine exactly, yeah. frees up the schedule a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine it was just like somebody who is a construction worker and then the pandemic hit and they like can't physically go to their job and they're like, well, I did love Legend of Zelda growing up and I love playing guitar. So I guess what if I did this? And it's like they realized their dream and like props to them. That's something that I feel like people who could and were able to use the quarantine time to their advantage props to them. Like, I feel like it could be an amazing experience for some people. It's been pretty nice for me in some aspects to have a bunch of free time to just like reflect on myself and do shit that I've always wanted to do. And like, damn, like, why didn't we do that, Chris? Why didn't we do a Prog Zelda album during quarantine? Well, I did do that all synth version of what's that George Michael song? Careless Whisper. Careless Whisper, yeah. I did Hell it with yeah. all our arpeggiators and like goofy synth sounds. I'm not releasing that to show anybody, but I did use some of my extra free time to do that. But you know, we have a whole other record that's like, you know, 90% written and we've started doing theme songs for things. Not to mention your hot sauce ventures are taking off and I've started making pies and skateboarding a lot. You know, it's not all just music and it's easy to, especially when you're doing a creative thing as your career, to have this idea of I have to be 
be a monolith of creativity and all of my energy has to go towards this one thing that I've geared my life to. And that can easily create that really negative relationship with creating when it's like always the expectation, like I need to have benchmarks, I need to sell, you know, my art, whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, don't be so hard on yourself, Evan. We've done plenty of music in this time. We've released a record. We've played international festivals on the internet. I'm glad I didn't spend uh, two months making a Zelda record. (laughs) I'm I'm glad we got to do all the things that we did. There's kind of like Zelda-esque tones on the guitar tracking on this song, actually. Oh yeah, for sure. I feel like we've always been really big into harmonized guitar leads, and then there was that weird like organy sound, and I remember back then I had a pedal. Actually, it was called the Bit, the Legend of Fuzz, and it (laughs) art on it was the Legend of Zelda, the Triforce, and yeah, eight bit link holding the sword. Uh, That's a have you ever pedal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a core part of our DNA. Yeah, you know, there's a good chance that we use that for the leads on this specific song because it does have that sound. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing I always say, too, is like whenever we're asked to kind of describe our musical influences for things, for me, like I mean, I grew up in terms of like actual real musicians listening to mostly like funk music and things like that. But for our guitar influence, it's all like video game soundtracks. It's all like Tim Fallon, like classic Super Nintendo synthetic guitar lead that's like cribbing the style of metal. Totally. Yeah, it's it's so much cooler than any real human musician could be. Because you just think about like this guitar sound makes me think of being the silver surfer flying through space. And uh, (laughs) I don't know, there's something more elevating about that experience. Definitely like one of my first musical experiences where I was like, this is the thing is um, as a kid hearing, if anyone who knows me particularly well ends up hearing this, they're going to be really bored with this story because I talk about it all the time. (laughs) The soundtrack for Streets of Rage 2 was made by this dude who he'd basically been sent like a bunch of early weirder like British techno and like acid house. And he was like, I just want to like emulate this. And he ended up making this absolutely crazy rave thing which predates a bunch of genres which then later appeared in dance music and british dance music it's so sick to this day like it still sounds like really really cool oh yes i gotta dip into that i think i've only played streets of rage one that's the one where you're the mayor it's like a brawler like a side-scrolling brawler you're like a guy in like a white vest and you're like blonde i think and then the second one there's like more of them but like the music and like the kind of like i guess production value of it is like a lot higher apparently i only heard it really recently but they released like a third one in japan only and it's like essentially like a gabba record like it's it's really nuts like the soundtrack for that one hell yes i gotta add that to my ever expanding video game backlog of things <laughs> yeah, i need yeah, to yeah. hit i remember playing streets of rage too growing up for sure i don't remember the soundtrack i also didn't love like electronic based music until very 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 recently i mean i always mm-hmm. loved chiptune and stuff yeah and that was like kind of the intro to it for me and like the intro to these video games but i guess i never revisited the streets of rage 2 soundtrack since then I think it's like having a sort of like parallel interest in like dance music is I think a very like British experience. Like you just grow up with, especially in the 90s, these sort of like co-running themes of all this like crazy like rave music and like you get into the start of like drum and bass and that kind of stuff, which is stuff I really love. And then like at the same time, there's Britpop happening. And then I remember going to the US and sort of realizing that teenage like radio experience is like completely different. Everyone talks a lot about like Third Eye 
blind who weren't a thing and stuff like that. Oh, wow. I guess we really took that for granted. Third Eye Blind was such a huge, like, ubiquitous part of us growing up to the point where we, in our old band, Dangerous Ponies, that we were all in, mm-hmm. we played a festival where Third Eye Blind was the headliner, and they were playing <laughs> the next day after us. But it was just so exciting for us to be like, we were on the same bill as Third Eye Blind. This is amazing. Yeah. And yet that doesn't translate at all. The first time I heard that album, I was like 28 or something. Like I I'd literally like never heard of that band in my life. Whereas like a really popular thing when I was like a teenager was like UK Garage, which is like, if you're not familiar, it's like this kind of like steppy version of like house music that ended up kind of appearing. And it was like really big in like Detroit as well. But that's like fucking absolutely like ubiquitous here as like a national genre. The second you go to the US, it like just didn't, it didn't travel like at all. Yeah, I have the inverse experience, or it wasn't until later in life, maybe maybe a little bit younger than 28, but where we started to really get into electronic music. We had the benefit of living with our friend John Bacon, who has a project called George and Jonathan, that judging by what you've described of what you like so far, you would absolutely love this project. We would always say it was like if Sonic the Hedgehog was going to the club. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy fun production, all electronic, and it really comes from that direct you know, electronic music tradition. But now it's everywhere. Like, I feel like there's so much of that. And like for somehow they were just like ahead of the curve. And I think, you know, it's again, largely because of the internet, like getting to share like more of that music at a much more rapid pace, like from international sources. Because that was not on the radio when I was a kid. I can remember listening to like Q102, Philadelphia's pop radio. And they drug out NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears, like long past their natural life cycle. And even though there's a lot of like electronic production to that, it's not like really in that sort of house or uh it's not like exciting like at all r&b production definitely i think is like a lot of that stuff has definitely carried over i think like timberland and people like that i think that's the people that get looked at as like really exciting now oh that's interesting i definitely feel that way like i think like sort of like timberland and neptune's production stuff if you listen to that now it's like really fascinatingly fresh still obviously stuff like nsync that hasn't aged as well i guess it's like a cultural thing yeah the nostalgia now is more powerful than ever in america i'm challenging you on that i'm gonna say that maybe nsync itself hasn't aged well but i don't know if you've ever listened to like bts and what a lot of the k-pop stuff sounds like that's yeah the biggest stuff in the whole world right now but a lot of that i feel like they were just like yo remember like 1996 and like midi acoustic guitar and like (laughs) you know what is that shit where you like you know run your hand across it like the uh, chimes, the wind, wind, wind chimes, chimes or whatever, yeah, like yeah. that kind of shit. All that shit I was regularly hearing in like that 90s pop, like that NSYNC sound. And all of a sudden, like I'm listening to all this new K-pop and it's like hybridized with like the newer styles of hip hop and dance music. But it's still, I'm just like, wait a second. Is that a MIDI acoustic guitar that I hear <laughs> in the background? Like, how did we get here? It's weird. Like teenager kind of culture now is really like this weird hybrid of like new stuff and also like things that I was embarrassed to be wearing when I was like 13. Totally. (laughs) My partner's like niece. She's like really into TikTok and she's like 11 or 12 and all the shit that she wants to wear is like, my friends were wearing this stuff and now it's like a running joke for us. Like, Well, that generation too, they're bringing back all kinds of things that we've deemed embarrassing, like the middle part. That's the big thing in the last few weeks I've learned about. Yeah. Yeah. They think our side parts are lame. I have been growing my hair and I am I am a middle part kind of gal, unfortunately. Uh, side, side part, I think, is more has more generational trauma for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> definitely makes me think of like very bad emo music. Yes. 
That also didn't age well. Yeah, that, that really didn't age well. Man, I, there's a picture on our refrigerator with me and this dude, Lee, who I met, you know, in 2013, like, touring. The haircut I had was just so bad. And the dudes, <laughs> oh, yeah. I just, Describe uh, that for the listener, Evan. Uh, it's just the side. What Sean's saying is the side part, like that emo kind of swoosh thing. Oh, it's so not fitting to the person that I am and like who I felt like I was even. It's just, yeah. I don't know why I did that. I, I think part of it was like, I felt like I had to have an actual haircut now for the past like three or four years i've just had like a shaved head and a beard and like it feels natural like i look like yeah. i'm tough i'm not tough at you all look great, i don't feel like i'm tough well thank <laughs> you I, I look tough and i'm like i'll just look tough when i put that side swooshy thing i'm like this is an imposter person i'm not that granted again i guess i'm an imposter anyway because i'm not tough and i just look <laughs> the um the embarrassing one for me was um when block party kind of first came out here if you are aware of that band they were big in oh US, yeah right yeah love block party yeah so when that first record hit i ended up getting like the same haircut the guitarist had at the time which was like kind of like a scruffy short back but like a really long front fringe okay <laughs> Wait, if you I google like press photos of them from like 2004 2005 it's like the skinny guitarist that haircut basically it's a real bad look <laughs> like that was like the quintessential like emo haircut if you listen to anything that was like vaguely screamo or emo, like that was yeah, this that is was like the look. this is me like screaming out about like gender dysphoria, but like not having the language for it yet. <laughs> yeah, I I think like I just wanted long hair, but like couldn't really like fully commit to it or didn't really understand like how to have a nice haircut at the time so kind of just like gleaned all my hairstyle ideas from like rock bands i mean yeah we all did you know that's how we that's how we had to do it growing your hair is fucking hard i just largely avoided getting haircuts for my whole life i mostly rocked waist length hair for the bulk of my existence like even during the quarantine the only haircut i got was i cut my own hair in the kitchen over the trash can because it had gotten down to my waist again and now it's it's approaching it again I wish I had uh, this, this much dedication to having such an incredibly fashionable <laughs> hairstyle. It seems like so much work. The other problem, like the other parts of the look that are really important are like polo shirts that are like way too fucking small for you and women's jeans that you've not really like thought about how they fit on your body. You just want like really, really tight jeans. Extremely 16 year old like English look. Oh, I saw that at my high school a lot too before skinny jeans were like available as a thing. Mm. Larger guys wearing women's cut jeans that like did not fit fully up their body. So they have this funny scrunched up pancake butt kind of look to it where there yeah. was like there was nothing in there. <laughs> I distinctly remember buying like sort of like button up shirts, but like the shirt kind of like came like above the belt line, which now I'm aware like was just you weren't actually like trying on the shirt, like and like <laughs> thinking about like how that looked. So like some I dream of genie exposed midriff going on there or Yeah, kind I kind of looked like a Toy Story toy. It's just like <laughs> like real bad like budget woody action figure. <laughs> Yeah, I just looked like a cargo shorts wearing chump in high school, so <laughs> at least there's a more fun description there. <laughs> oh man, you have to see this photo of Evan in high school. It's the most glamorous shot of any of my friends that I've ever seen. I know Evan knows the photo I'm describing. It's when he had long, sort of billowing, beautiful hair, 
his gauge is like prominently displayed with his hair like to kind of tuck back and he has this like charming smile and a glint in his eye. Was that your school photo, Evan? What was that photo taken for? I have no idea what photo you're referring to. It's, it was hanging <laughs> up in your parents' house when you first walked in for the longest time before they moved. I think you're wearing a, like a suit possibly. It might have been your graduation photo. I don't That's know. That's probably my graduation photo. You would expect like an ABBA music video style soft lighting around oh, his face. Yeah. He looks so glamorous and positive. Yeah. Well, Corey also had long hair at a time. I don't know. I liked having long hair. I feel it's too unmanageable for me. I can't deal with it. Like even where my hair is at now, like this is too much. I look like a clown. See, look, I got this clown ass. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Blown out on the side. For the listener, Evan has like just beyond like a George Clooney Caesar cut right now. For me, that's the hard part though. Like having like grown out my hair again in lockdown, like for the first time since I was like a teenager when I had long hair, but I sort of had like this weird like John Lennon cut that my mom cut in for me. Wait, wait, which which era of John Lennon is this haircut? Um, <laughs> I want to say like 70s, like sort of like pre-assassination. Oh, like late solo career. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's like kind of down to like for the listeners, like sort of like past my ear, but wasn't particularly well cut. And I've been growing it again since. And for me, the hardest part was that kind of like part where the sides of your head just look like Doc Brown. <laughs> like every day, yeah. like this part just goes sideways. Like why? Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly what I'm saying, Sean. If I don't cut this today, like all of a sudden that's I'm going to be Doc Brown in like two yeah. weeks. I relate. And it's I just a nightmare. Can't. <laughs> Marty, we gotta get back to the. I gotta spot. say, with someone with hair like to my ass, the knots are at a new level of difficulty. It's ridiculous. How often do you wash? Out of interest, this is hair care chat now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, every few days, I guess. Okay. I usually just condition, and then occasionally. If my hair is feeling oily, like super oily, I'll, I'll shampoo. Yeah. Oh, wait, so you don't even shampoo every time you, like, theoretically this wash your hair. This is what my hair. wife told me to... Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do this now. In every stage of my life, someone's been like, no, you do this. And I'm like, my mom told me this. And then, like, that changed someone. And then someone else was like... No. And then the next person was like, no. And then now I met my wife and she's like, you're just going to use conditioner yeah. until you feel super oily. Yeah. I was like, okay. Interesting. Diluted apple cider vinegar as conditioner. That's my wave. So good. Whoa. Yeah. Because it like cleans your hair and like kills all the bacteria, but it doesn't have any of the chemicals that like store conditioner would have, I guess. So wait, Sean, bring us through your hair care routine. <laughs> I feel like we should also all let our hair down right now so we can just get all our cards on the table. But talk about your hair care routine. All right, I'm on a no-wash routine, which basically means that you don't use shampoo like at all, which is because of the sulfites in shampoo. They're really bad for your hair, apparently. So currently, I just don't wash, but I condition my hair every few days with like diluted apple cider vinegar. And apparently, if it gets really gross, you can wash it with like super diluted Dr. Bronner's. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just putting straight up Dr. Bronner's on there is, it turns it into yeah, like a cakey yeah. kind of nasty mess. Yeah. yeah. Diluting it is very important. Yeah. But that's Mikey, it. your hair. Oh, Damn, my God. So that's long. the longest yeah, I've ever so seen it. it is. Yeah, I thought, I was proud of this. Damn, Mikey. The listener, his hair is out of frame. He's Rapunzel status right now. Yeah, this is beautiful. It is to my bum. <laughs> <laughs> to my bum bum. That's a dream. Uh, for the listener, I am looking at three rock gods or <laughs> goddesses. I can only dream for this. Mikey and Chris look like they're in a 70s stoner rock band. <laughs> and Sean looks like they're fronting any number of amazing 90s rock acts right now. That's it's also a, the look, look I'm going for. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real kind of Marcy's Playground sort of deal. 
Yeah, I'm going for like the Cruel Intentions Bob, basically. Oh, nice. Yeah. You've got a couple inches to go, but you're almost there. Looks good. I also didn't realize your hair was that dark. Yeah, although it's really gray now, actually. I have like shit loads of gray hair now. Yeah, I'm, but that's the oh, good the stuff. Oh, the salt and pepper yeah, yeah. temples. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I love yeah. it. I started going gray at like 22, so I'm, I'm more than prepared. You and Peter Helmus. Salt and pepper god right oh, there. Oh, yeah. Have you seen Peter in the last few years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's turning into a real salt shaker. <laughs> wow, so cool. Everyone has beautiful hair. I'm sorry that I don't. You've got the you've got the beautiful beard. I've got a widow's peak and a beard. Well, that's why I'm so committed to my middle part as well, because I've had a, a widow's peak my whole life. And so fortunately now I'm 32, so I've aged into the hairline that I was born with. But my uncle used to call me Phil Collins when I was a little kid because of my hairline. Wow. <laughs> so that's, a, that's my trauma that, that I carry is, with me. Yeah. That is brutal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. He thinks he's funny. That is ice cold. My brother would often pick up. On me because of my hairline because he was six years younger than me and he had like a perfect hairline like around mm. his forehead like a square. it was just like it <laughs> yeah, was like square action man hair Corey's <laughs> favorite game to play whenever we met new people he would line up next to Evan and be like hey which one of us do you think is older <laughs> and you know invariably people would pick Corey because he's taller super deep voice everything and be like. No, I'm I'm younger. You see this hairline? And he'd pull his hair back. Like, Look at that. Look how much better my hairline is. <laughs> Damn. It's true. It was. Yep. Seen it a few times. Kind of surprised I didn't go bald, to be honest. I feel like doing sort of like DIY space for London and like band stuff throughout my life probably should have like meant that I had a lot more hair fallout than I've experienced. <laughs> Yeah, not to mention just like surviving the stress of a pandemic for a full year now. Uh... Oh yeah, I, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely went more gray like really quickly. <laughs> well, isn't balding generational and like doesn't it skip generational? Isn't it like genes and? Yeah, my my family doesn't really go bald. The only person whose whose hair has sort of receded in my family is actually my dad, which is weird. Like no one else on my dad's side of my family experienced that. Like both my grandfathers had like a full head of hair basically their entire life. I heard it skips a generation. I think the science isn't quite as conclusive on that yet because they're still obviously kind of figuring it out. But there's a lot of different variable sort of things that can contribute to it. Like there's also like major hormonal changes in a person can wind up like leading to a significant hair loss. Often people who are heavy lifting like bodybuilders, I forget what you call that, but they'll, they more frequently will lose their hair because of their sort of hormonal spikes that they experience. Steroids. Wow. Powerlifting. Powerlifting. Thank you, Mikey. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's like a combination of genetics and, you know, it's like na nature and nurture as well. I'll, I'll skip the uh, powerlifting career then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick to skateboarding. Cross uh, that one off the list. Mikey, you are just inherently a powerlifter. You're fine, man. <laughs> <laughs> You have the physique of a powerlifter just from like doing basic things around the house. Like normally you just like lift enough hoagies and, and pre-made sandwiches and like uh, tasty cakes. And then you just like build muscle mass from doing that. And now I would, I would like to say I lift meat for primal supply meats, Philadelphia. <laughs> He's a delivery man for a bit. Like, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. If you buy meat from them. I will bring it to your doorstep. He's very handsome. That's a big plug. <laughs> if, you bu if you buy meat from Primal Supply, you also get a free beefcake. It's pretty amazing. They also, like, they have, like, eggs 
milk. You can buy greens and salad stuff. Yeah. Support local. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading a, a study that came out a few years ago that supposedly like drummers, if you drum really regularly, it gives you like the same sort of athleticism that like long-term like Olympic swimmers have because you're working like absolutely everything. Hmm. You're just like, you're just, holding, you're just holding it all in. Looking at Mikey, he's proof positive for sure. Yeah, he's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just drum all day long. <laughs> I swear, like when I get up in the morning, my feet I'm um, just like a restless foot syndrome kind of vibe. Same. But like I'm just like tapping in the morning. At 4.50 in the morning, I'm like awake. And I'm like, fuck, I know I'm awake. And then I just start tapping. And it, whenever I'm even like holding my wife's hands, like I can't not do <laughs> like finger tap on her hand or like something. I'm just like everything. I definitely realized I used to do that all the time as a kid, like drum on tables and like you know, shake my knee and all that kind of stuff. And then was like, oh, right. There's an instrument that like is useful for this. Like, I used to drum on my desk all the time in high school. And I finally had a point where there was a class I had with the girl I was dating my senior year of high school. And she was like, what are you doing? That's so embarrassing. Stop tapping things. And it's like, I can't help it. I just, you know, I got a song in my head and I want to just play it out. You know, when you have the music in you, it's going to find its way out. Yeah, I always feel like it gave- you got the music in you. Banger. Yeah, there we go. Um, I always feel like it gave me a really like instinctive sense of rhythm. Obviously, it's annoying to like not be able to stop moving your knee, for example. I think overall, like it probably helps me write drum parts a lot. I've never ever played drums anymore. I just maybe I need that and it'll help me sleep in in the morning. See, here's the thing is I got all these silent drum heads, Mikey. I'm waiting for you to give me the okay to bring you all these silent drum heads so you can have a silent drum kit in your house that at 4.30 in the morning you can wake up, you go downstairs, and you can fucking play these silent drums and nobody will hear you. Except actually they might because you'll probably rim shot the shit out of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like for you, I feel like it'll be good. I don't know. Yeah. My basement is not there yet. Having just bought a house. Living room. Put it in the living room. <laughs> yeah, right. Put it on the My front cat yard. I love that. My cat would destroy that. Yeah, he probably would. They're like mesh heads, so your cat would totally love the shit out of yeah. those heads and totally fuck them up. But it'd be sick. We'll see. Sean, do you drum? I drummed very briefly for uh, a project. You know, um, First Time's a Charm in Philly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my friend, Bryony, uh, Bryony Bynan of the band Good Frob, an incredible band uh, your listeners should check out. Mm -hmm. um, she created a UK version a few years ago called First Timers, which I think ran pretty concurrently. And for one of those, I drummed in a band, which I would say I can do sort of like a basic 4-4. I don't own a drum kit until really recently. I haven't really had any access to a practice space either. So I would say that keeping it as a thing that I'm learning really kind of dropped off. I would love to drum more than I do, definitely. Like, I love playing drums. It's such, like, a euphoric feeling. Do you have access to a practice space now, you said? Yeah, I do. At the moment, it's currently mostly being used. Me and my partner are doing a project called Merging, which is more sort of electronic. It's, like, them sort of doing, like, really heavily processed vocals and stuff and us sort of, like, writing stuff on, like, a drum machine and processing those sounds like that kind of thing and we needed kind of space to work on that because that stuff just sounds really different we can like listen for it on speakers at home but like it just sounds so different when you're in a room playing it for a pa at like full volume it kind of needs that like full body experience i think so we've mostly been using it for that i think we're getting like a longer slot which means that i would probably be able to play drums a lot more but it's a weird spot 
So I haven't had a huge amount of access to it yet. What do you mean by longer slot? Like there are slated times, I guess, is when you split with people. Practicing music in London is like not easy and really expensive. That was definitely one thing about Philly that I fucking loved is like everyone has a basement or like just like a constant studio. And yeah, that just like doesn't really exist here. I used to work for a DIY venue in London called Power Launches, which you could kind of use the basement of that to practice in like an old band of mine used to practice in that, but that like stopped. So most of the time it's like a model where you pay someone a certain amount of money and you get like four hours or something, but it's really expensive. It's normally like 10 pounds an hour uh, minimum. At the moment we pay for like one day, which is like 50 each between us a month. Oh, wow. But that's, that's like a month. So like cumulatively, I'm probably paying like 12 something. But that's honestly like as cheap as it gets. It's pretty expensive. <laughs> I gotta say. It's a fucking hard city to make music in. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. Like it's really, really difficult to make music here. It's really Why difficult. Why is that though? I feel like it's like such a legendary, it's like, you know, the the big city over there yeah honestly um i think going into why would be a whole other podcast in itself <laughs> but like realistically it's just like years of underfunding the arts underfunding music people just don't have the fucking money and time to like start these spaces you guys have toured europe right so like you must mm -hmm. be familiar with when you go to like germany and everywhere gives you free drinks and it's like this squatted venue with years of history behind it these things just like don't really exist in the uk there's like one or two but that was sort of why i got involved with starting diy space for london in london about five years ago was because that shit just like doesn't exist club nights and like warehouses and stuff like raves and like late night parties that stuff is a thing that's existed throughout British culture. But in terms of actually making the art, it's getting harder and harder to afford to do it. There just isn't really like the means. Okay, I got two questions. First off, yeah. have you kind of noticed the experience of people in London moving out of London to more the country or different cities throughout the quarantine? Because I know once New York City shut down, Tons and tons and tons of people just moved to like an hour or two outside of New York to buy property just because they're like, okay, we work from home now. There's no reason for us to live in this city. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. And everyone's abandoning that in New York because New York, similarly, like it's $10 an hour to use a practice space. And that's like a cheap one, you know? So it's, yeah. it's like well, so hard to find that kind of stuff. I'm sure there's more and people who live in New York, I'm sure have figured it out a little bit better. They do have basements in New York, but granted, I'm sure they rent them as apartments because the way that mm -hmm. space is... <laughs> Those spaces like come with gear at all? Uh, yeah, you'll get a kind of backline gear, but have to bring your own cymbals and shit. Yeah. Normally the amplifiers and the drum kits are really shitty. Like my main band, Negative Space, that has quite often been the case will like turn up and like the drum kit is like really terrible. We've been like lucky enough that my drummer kind of drives his own kit to practice it's really common and often if you don't have the money to like store a drum kit somewhere which like i don't fucking have that space or money you just have to deal with what you're given i think it's really common yeah. even with shows like diy shows like everyone shares gear the whole like american diy thing of kind of like breaking down the band in between each bands is like absolutely insane yeah. to me like i was like what are they doing why are they doing this this show could run so much quicker if everyone used like the same head you know what i mean 
it's just not common for people to own gear. Definitely when the quarantine hit, loads of people moved away. I wouldn't necessarily they say they bought houses. Buying houses in England is also like insanely expensive and getting more and more expensive over time. But definitely moved to cheaper cities. There's an area sort of outside of London called Kent, uh, which is nearer the coast that a lot of people moved to. A lot of people moved up north, like a lot of people moved to like Leeds and Manchester, places like that. Having lived in Leeds, you can work less to do more there's obviously like takeaways from that Mm -hmm. like the kind of access of like everything that i have here i think is like really important to like why i stay living here right the uh i guess when i was mentioning people moving out of the city a lot of those people are people i definitely don't know i mean manhattan is a fucking crazy place you know and it's so expensive to live there i'm sure it's similar prices in london you know with just like how much money you're paying for like a one-room apartment i definitely have lived in places that have been um one person who surveyed one of my old houses called it legally unlivable um and that i was paying 600 a month plus bills just to have a bedroom and to live with three people currently i pay like 700 each with me and my partner and we have like a full two-bedroom flat but it's like the nicest place i've ever lived it's a lot of money still though like comparatively seems like a a better situation than uh, paying 600 quid for an unlivable space definitely i'd I'd like to thank you for using the appropriate denomination quid as well (laughs) it's no wonder you felt so comfortable with big mamas too because i I think that was technically legally unlivable as well oh yeah for sure (laughs) i i always wondered how the fuck like because there was all that stuff that was sort of like towards the ceiling i always wondered how that even like got up there i had a lot of decoration mysteries they had like a 40 foot ladder so so Greg and Pete would just like go up and do all That's sorts terrifying. of like Pete put those paper mache heads like all the way at the top above mm-hmm. that one yeah. room you remember and then yeah, yeah, yeah they just had a large ladder and they were Greg would go up and hang all sorts of art and shit we were able to go up through the roof and you would have to take mm-hmm. a ladder all the way to the top of the ceiling and I was, yeah, was the most that. horrifying thing yeah, yeah no way <laughs> no way I would not do that. Everyone would be like, yo, let's go smoke weed on the roof. And I'd be like, yo, you're telling me to climb this 40-foot ladder into (laughs) the sky, smoke weed, and then climb down this 40-foot ladder? (laughs) I'm like, nah. Sorry, I'm good. I don't want that. (laughs) Well, maybe next time you come to the States and hopefully we get Mama's back, we can go do that one day. Climb all the 40-foot ladders in Philadelphia. (laughs) Why don't we just build a nice staircase up to there? Uh... Oh, like, or have like walk. a spiral staircase that goes straight <laughs> yeah, up just, to save space. There's so much space. Like, like it's a lighthouse. Even, yeah, we never right? did it yeah. in the past because we certainly couldn't afford to. <laughs> <laughs> just get a bunch of beams and posts and it'd be so easy and great. I, I'm kind of envisioning like a classic Batman television show situation where they had the fireman pole that had like a weird pad that would slide up and down it so they could just hop onto it and shoot up the fireman pole if they needed to. If we could somehow make that real, I feel like that's our best possible solution <laughs> to get in and out of there. All too expensive. I'm just not going to go. I'm not going up. Okay. <laughs> I'm out. We'll set up a pulley uh, with like a dumbwaiter where we can just like pull Evan up manually afterwards when everybody else is up there. Still scary. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Give me an elevator. Well, I guess that is technically an elevator. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like how different the scene of, like of a like a city comes from like what's available with like the buildings and everything. Because I can remember when yeah. um, you don't happen to know Johnny Farner, do you? Uh, the band? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. When they first came to the States, they were really excited to have a set up a basement show for them because apparently that's just like not something that people do. Yeah, is that because of the availability of basements? 
or yeah they just aren't that common here like the houses quite often are like so close together especially in london it's just really not common it really isn't i was like sort of lucky enough that there was like a period when i was in my 20s in a band where some places in the north had started to do that bizarrely like the first ever Algernon show in the uk was in a basement that fit like 10 20 people it's, again super oh not God. common <laughs> and definitely in a city as big as london it just like isn't a thing that's really possible even like having like house shows it's just so risky there's definitely way more risk that i think you'd be like evicted oh wow so yeah wild. i wasn't expecting that well speaking of houses being close together philadelphia is you know it's mostly row home all the houses are you know genuinely they share a wall they're, they're touching and we would get the cops calling us you know pretty frequently for being way mm. too loud at two in the morning on a tuesday night but even still though it's just like kind of part of the culture and part of the expectation it's shocking that you would get evicted for possibly is it the the noise complaint angle or because you're having yeah. like an illegal party or i think it's normally the noise complaint angle and renting in the uk you don't really have a lot of rights primarily because they removed a lot of them um in the 80s and 90s you're kind of always on like tiptoes when you're renting it's really really hard to rent in the city most of the shows i went to sort of would be in pubs like it's really common to like sneak into pubs before you're like legally allowed to be in a pub to see a band and then when i was in my 20s more people were trying to do like unorthodox kind of shows i went to some shows that were sort of in like arches under like railway stations or a couple of shows i went to that were like on a boat on the thames when i was Whoa, in my mid-20s oh, yeah cool. <laughs> um, yeah yeah same same friend who started up first timers did those like a band from the u.s called brilliant colors who i think were a portland band like played on a boat that was really really sick but basically like there was a real point where it was sort of like wherever you can find a place that will be open for like one show that's the place you'll do the show and then obviously like that gets tiring when you're trying to do regular shows because everything just falls apart like all the time which was i guess the real push in the past 10 years to have more spaces that are like permanent like there's one in leeds called wharf chambers which is like a cooperative space that kind of came up in the last 10 years doi space for london was like a response to that um there's a couple of ones as well in the uk but they're really rare can you tell us a little bit more about diy space for london yeah sure so it's actually closed now and i'm not really involved with it anymore but like it was a sort of community run cooperative art space and venue in south london the initial sort of like core working group of people were actually fundraising for when i was spending time in philadelphia so when i came back was sort of the point at which they'd signed the lease and that's really the point i think it like really hit the ground running it ran on a sort of non-hierarchical model so like there were no bosses everything was sort of like as cheap as we could make it to kind of keep running mm -hmm. and there was like a gig room a bar room the way essentially like co-ops stay open in the uk is like through alcohol sale it sucks but that's kind of the mm -hmm. reality of it is it drives more money and then we ended up getting like a print space and a record store moved in when it opened which now is like its own record store in east london like they changed premises but yeah like it ran for like five years just as like one of the biggest diy venues in london like it totally changed my life in innumerable ways it was also like one of the most stressful experiences of my life <laughs> as i'm sure you can imagine mm -hmm. essentially like what you would be used to there is sort of like a completely diy venue that was legally stable that was the idea the model almost like european squats where like european squats are allowed to just be open i'm glad it was able to go on for as long as it was i wonder if there's going to be anything that could 
you know, kind of pick up where it left off, especially after the lockdown and whatnot. Yeah, I think there's discussions about what will kind of come out of it. It closed not purely because of the lockdown, but sort of, I guess, was the final nail for a lot of the problems that had been kind of long running with it, Mm -hmm. which are like the usual kind of stuff, like volunteer, kind of stamina, like money. The space was huge. It's like a 200 capacity venue in of itself, Mm -hmm. plus a bar. It costs like 400 pounds a day just to have the lights on. Damn. Uh, Really, really expensive. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So yeah. Yeah. Real shit. Using the wrong kind of bulbs. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> Need to get switch over to LED. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's some discussion about what to do with the kind of leftover funds from it and like what will come out of that. There's been some hopeful talk about using the funds to either help out with like a new space that has sort of been inspired by it. And then there's a couple other ideas that I think are floating around as well. Yeah, stuff like that's going to be really vital moving forward. I know in America, we're getting a lot of venue closures, small venues all over the country. Are you guys seeing that same? sort of um, decline we're sort of on like the last legs i feel like there's definitely been a lot they've just announced like an eighteen thousand pound grant for businesses and they did an arts grant a month or two ago where you contractually had to thank the government publicly for getting the grant which <laughs> is like <laughs> fucked in of itself it's sort of if they hadn't announced this i think it really would have been the turning point where like basically all the clubs and like all the venues would have shut down i know a lot of people are really 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 suffering in terms of like trying to keep their shit afloat, basically. I was hoping for something more hopeful, yeah. but at least there's... <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, like, I, I have hope that, like, those things will continue. I think a lot of the DIY ones that I sort of expected to close sooner have been able to keep open. And I think also, like, London is a really, really resilient city, and... There's never been a point where it's like nothing is happening. I always think about kind of like weeds growing out of concrete. You can try and repress that stuff as much as possible, but like it will always reappear in some sense. Even sort of pre-pandemic, the amount of stuff I went to that exists on kind of shaky legal ground or like shouldn't really be a venue or like even during the pandemic, I heard about warehouse raves and like squat raves and stuff, which obviously like isn't good. But there will always be people working to kind of have a release, I guess. And I think there are enough people working on spaces throughout the UK that have really, really fought to keep themselves afloat. And I think will continue to do so. The scene finds a way. Rock finds a way, yeah. I think, is the, uh, the message that we keep, yeah, yeah. we keep landing on. Yeah, I guess the point I was sort of trying to make, I guess, is like, imagine if you had grown up in Philadelphia sort of going to see bands that were like playing like the size of... First Unitarian Church is actually probably a pretty good example because I think the room is probably relatively similar to the size of DOI Space's room. But imagine if that had just been like... You go in, a bouncer searches you for beer, all the tickets are really expensive, all the beer is like sort of major owned beer company. Like the whole experience Mm -hmm. is about like getting your money and then it's over by like 10 because they have to kick you out for this shitty club night that makes the money even though the club night's really shitty. Oh, we still have that. (laughs) But like that's your like whole experience of going to gigs. So when you go to a DIY room for the first time, you're Mm -hmm. not going to be like this is different. You're going to just assume that's the same thing. 
And I think definitely like people would ask us like, oh, so like none of you get paid. Why are you doing this? Well, because you came to it. So like surely that answers your question is the fact you're here. Yeah, the love of the game, the love of the scene. Yeah, but I think if you haven't had subcultural experience of what the kind of like transformative nature of those spaces, it's really hard to like separate that idea from being like you turn up, people serve you, everything is for you. It's not like a community thing. It's all very like individualistic. And I think that's like really hard for people to break out of if they've never experienced it at least that's how i felt about sort of occasionally like what i would observe it was really interesting to kind of go from the assumption that everyone would be on the same level and understand what we were going for and quite often more often than not people wouldn't really get it at first I guess I don't want to paint the idea that like everyone was going through DIY Spaces doors and no one really understood what was going on. So many people were so supportive and so involved. So many different new sort of like groups of people or really, really like amazing, interesting things came out of me being a part of that venue. But like, I think when you've never experienced that, that's like more of a shock to the system. And hopefully like, I would like to think that sort of towards the end, we were sort of well-known enough, bigger artists, would start to use us for sort of secret shows i guess part of what's cool about that happening on our terms is that that person's fan base who probably would normally see them at like you know like a major venue gets to experience this like other thing and hopefully i'd like to think that made some impression i'm sure all of us were avid concert goers growing up at least i know i was mm. i would go to from high school onward a hundred or more shows a year i would keep tabs and like write them down and remember you know who i saw that year and whatnot when i was younger i was really into it same when i studied abroad in london i noticed that a lot of the pubs are like subsidized you know like it's like the same yeah same shit in all the venues the same beer the same mm -hmm. same everything and like i, yeah. I realized that that is a big part of the music kind of experience out there that's kind of i guess where you get into like there's this like parallel thing of electronic music because electronic music can't put on a thing that ends at 10 p.m in a park it just isn't how that culture and that subculture of music work you do have other spaces in london that are like warehouse spaces or kind of legal spaces that have kind of come up through like the same response not necessarily with like the same idea as diy space but i would say like ethically relatively similar but sort of more geared towards being open like really late do you ever go to the raves or any of those warehouses yeah i i love that shit i've always been really really into dance music and as like a general whole and i think that is a hard thing to translate in philly because like <laughs> the culture is really different i think the kind of concept of what that means is really different like when i was there was sort of that period where like the kind of really shrill kind of Skrillexy sort of dubstep had started to come out. And obviously like I was very into like when dubstep first came out, which was very based in like sort of Jamaican sound system culture and like reggae and like actual dub. And it's really like sonically experimental and interesting. And, and then the American version is like, what if this drum is like the most distorted it can be and really annoying? It's weird to like come to a different culture and be like oh like i really like this stuff and then they perceive that i mean like skrillex you know like oh, i i do love skrillex though <laughs> same <laughs> or at least when skrillex first came out i i loved it i never heard anything like it before i was like damn this is great nastiest synth bass tone it's so so aggressive i think the very thing that you're saying is a departure is uh yeah that's what was so exciting yeah here it's 
again, I guess dance music is just really inherent to the culture. And I think it's really common, at least to me, if you're into DIY music that ends up sort of bleeding into other areas and you end up experiencing like different genres because you end up sort of in a room with like other freaks who want to make music and then play it really loudly until like 3am. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of hard like definitely any DIY venue I've ever worked in, it wouldn't exist if it was just a punk venue, you know? Like it has to broaden its spectrum or like it just doesn't survive. Well, that was one of my favorite parts of getting deeper into the DIY scene is just inherently there's that sort of mixing of genres in every show. Mm. Cause like I remember growing up and if you liked a particular genre, then we were like, oh, you're this type of person. You hang out with these type of people mm-hmm. and you stick with like your genre fans in a way. Those barriers broke down in college. I mean, for one, just like meeting Evan early on, who is like an avid music consumer in all sorts of different ways, opened that up for mm-hmm. me. But just for all of us, I'd say being in the Dangerous Ponies and playing a lot of different DIY spaces and also like specifically like safe spaces and like, you know, queer spaces and everything too. Like we had a lot more of the genre blending that was coming from that because the parameters that we were meeting wasn't because it was this type of music going into this type of space. Sure. It was like, this is a safe space for all people. You know, the categorization comes from somewhere else and it's just about expression and, and sharing whatever your creative oral thing yeah, is. Yeah, like I think for me, definitely as I get older as well, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't listen to punk or like I don't have an interest in punk. Like I've spent like basically my entire adult life sort of doing something that relates to it but i think what really really excites me more than anything is like hearing music and seeing people create art of like any form that sort of confronts power and sort of confronts homogeny and does like weird experimental stuff and i think that always sort of tends to inform the music i make in a better way definitely the main band i do negative space which is like ostensibly sort of like a post-punk band Mm -hmm. all of my influences for it and all the sort of ideas i think that definitely we have more recently don't sound like this like 77 punk bands like guitar part or something i definitely think the more we write the more it sort of is informed by like other genres and like ideas of sound it's the best way to do it yeah and that's where new genre comes mm. from yeah that's that's the coolest thing have you been able to work on any of that during quarantine mm, no not really um so it's technically illegal at the moment for me to be in a room with anyone i don't live with and two members of my band do not live in London. One lives about 15 minutes away from me. But basically, we've just not really been able to write. We've kind of been working on a record for the past two years, but it's moved pretty slowly, mainly because of the lockdowns, because we can't even be in the same room. We couldn't like self-isolate for a week and then be like, okay, this is like dedicated time where we can write. It just hasn't really moved, which is annoying. We're like a band that moves quite quickly, generally, I feel like and are pretty productive so it's been quite odd to kind of have that like fall back a bit in terms of the priorities in my mind it's so interesting to me the way that you guys are doing lockdown over there because we've never had anything like as intense as that over on our side Mm. we were supposed to in the beginning but like it still was never like the way it was in france where our friend dana lived and she was like yeah you have to get like a ticket to be able to go outside and you have to be you can't be outside for more than x amount of time and you're not allowed to go further out of x amount of a radius and it's just like here it was kind of like you guys should stay inside and be good samaritans and don't see anyone and that was like kind of what they said and they closed a bunch of businesses and that was it. England is a 
weird one because it sort of falls between like the way the rest of Europe did it, which was quite hardcore but effective, and then the way the US did it, which was seemingly just ignore it exists. And <laughs> we sort of sit in the middle where like the reason we're in lockdown at the moment is because the government fucked up so many times and fucked up so hard that they had to bring in a second lockdown. The first one was like, I think, two months long because that led into like a summer where the rates were down. Generally like national morale or at least morale amongst like people I know. It was like okay and sort of manageable once the initial freak out of like what the fuck is happening kind of passed. And now I think where this one has been so long and like quite isolating for a lot of people, I think it's been like way, way, way harder. I'm obviously in like a really lucky position of like living with my partner and i have no idea what that would be like if we didn't you know i feel bad for people who would live alone you'd write a record about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that was a point that i made early on evan and i lived in the same house and it was just like such a huge boon for us it's just like well we have nothing else to do let's just start throwing together whatever musical ideas that we have and we could focus mm. on the video game that we were releasing we were very lucky mm. at least it gave us an expected kind of social element you know mikey and his wife now they have their own place but like you guys had roommates previously before we moved into the new place like Having that community at a time when we're forced into these especially tiny villages or even smaller, mm. it makes a world of difference. I can't imagine how isolating it is. Like for the people I do know who were living on their their own, I made it a point constantly to, to check in with them and just talk to them for a little while. My 88-year-old grandfather lives on his own. I would always ask him, like, like, like hey, uh, what you know? so what's new? And he's like, nothing. Netflix is still good. Yeah, thanks for setting up Netflix for me. And it's like, yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> Yeah, you have something there. That's basically the conversation that, like, every English person is having constantly at the moment is, like, that level of just, like, yeah, I mean, I can't leave the house. So, like, what do you want me to say? (laughs) Like, But, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's obviously, like, (laughs) frustrating. That band has been really artistically satisfying for me. And the stuff that we were making, I think, was, like, blending a lot of the influences that I wanted to kind of work in that we'd sort of begun to kind of like toy around with when we tour a lot more cleanly. And I was really like ready to record. I I mean, I think we were going to record the record like last summer and obviously like, it's like not even done. Also like I yell in that band. I'm extremely (laughs) desperate to like be sort of like bumping into people. Being the front person and also the release of emotion that you've probably built up at this point, you know? The weirdest thing, actually, we did like two band practices. The bass player sort of lives in like this place in Hastings, which is like a coastal town. I realized I'd like completely forgotten how to project my voice because I obviously don't yell at home. So like, it was really weird to be like in a room and be like, wait, how do I do the, through the, through the gut again? Is that how that works? Oh man. Yeah. Really odd. I had that thing where, you know, when your voice is like kind of breaking when you sing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not good. So I'm a little like nervous really about like going back because I think I'm going to have to like spend a bit of time kind of like retraining my voice. Yeah, you got to do your stretches before Mm. you run the marathon. You're going to have to get one of those like videos uh, back in the, you know, emo days that didn't age well. You'll have to get one of those those how to scream videos. Thankfully, I don't do that style of vocal as much as I think I would love to be in like a kind of death metal band at some point. I don't think I I don't think we can really carry that one off. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) 
I'm having kind of the same thing where like I've never really been able to find my voice, but not really singing or having to play live and like keep up that stamina. Yeah. When I've been recording songs, I'll like record vocals to one song and I won't have a voice for like a week. <laughs> like I'll just blow it yeah. out to smithereens because it's so just out of practice. It's not a particularly like melodic band, but I just, I think the kind of, the tonality of it is really hard for me to like envision at the moment because mm -hmm. I don't yell with like that kind of volume at all. Like I barely even sing around the house at the moment, which I've kind of noticed is affecting my ability to like hit a note, which is really weird. I feel so out of practice where I'm just like, oh my God, like why? It used to be so dialed mm -hmm. in. Like what happened to me? Every time I've been in the studio, I feel like 10 minutes into singing, my voice just feels so strained and tired. I'm just like not not used to singing that often mm. to ever get used to that, I guess. I got into a real regiment when we go on tour. I feel like I got very obsessed with care of my throat when we go on tour and I'd always bring like spare tea and stuff. I'd, I'd always be like the first one to sleep. I'm like the mum on tour. What's your tea of choice for your voice? Uh, ginger. Oh, that's a good one. Do you have like throat coat over there? Like the licorice and other yeah, uh, based? But, yeah, but I've been told apparently that shit's actually like really bad for your voice. Really? Like oh. apparently it's sort of like, it's like numbing, right? That's yeah. the idea. Yeah. So apparently like because you've numbed it, you aren't as aware that you're like straining your voice. That might be like an old wife's tale. No, no, no. I know that. You're right. One of the things that I was told is to use it after you sing, you know? Like, that's what mm. we do when we're recording in the studio or, like, recording other bands and stuff. We will use it. But it's one of those yeah. things where we'll have that or, like, Singer Saving Grace just to use to, like, get through to finish whatever it was that we started. And then we'll call it because... Once your voice is strained or physically tired, it's like you push it, you're going to damage it. And that's exactly what, you know, you're saying is if you drink that throughout the show or like use Singer Saving Grace. When I was on tour with the Desparcitos, Connor Oberst would go and he had a bottle of Singer Saving Grace on his amp and he would go like shoot it into his throat like every <laughs> couple songs. And I'm just like, this can't be good. No, It's where I learned about it, which was awesome because I was like, this is an amazing tool. But now looking back on it, I'm like, oh my God, you are just screaming your face off you get into that kind of psychosomatic thing right like i don't drink anymore but like when i used to drink i would drink with the kind of like the idea that if i drank a beer my throat would be like ready to like yell in a band and obviously like that's fucking insane but like you kind of <laughs> trick yourself into like believing that this is true and is actually helping and then you wake up the next day and you're like why can't i speak mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a good point. Singing is the most psychologically uh, based instrument, you know, that's out there because it's like a physically like a part of your body. And having that mindset to kind of push yourself more, like, like you know, just having like a bit of alcohol or something that's kind of loosening you mm. up puts you in that place where you're performing more and you're not really like thinking about like the things that stress you out and make you tense up a little bit. Because becoming tense is like a huge part of making your vocal cords more yeah, tense yeah, yeah. and then you're pushing yourself and damaging yourself in certain ways more. I'm not much of a drinker myself, but like Evan's actually brought up this, um, not wives tale, but like a, like a home remedy sort of element where it's like, oh, your throat hurts, just yeah, have a shot yeah. of whiskey and yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll be able to speak and sing Classic. better. But it just comes from that place of being like, I can mentally push myself through these things. Yeah. Do you get nervous when you're like in a singing role in playing music? Do you get nervous before you play generally? 
Oh, I get nervous for every show. Yeah. Mm. And then like after like a song in and we're just in the muscle memory and just enjoying the moment, it's easy to kind of let go. Uh, we were just like thrust into playing big shows very suddenly yeah. earlier than I would have expected. And we did a tour with Brand New and we were playing Whoa. to like upwards of a few thousand people. I don't remember what the yeah. biggest show was. Big band. Terrifying. But Evan, you never see it with him. Like, Evan, you, did you reach that level of nervousness too? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I'm traditionally like a bass player. The first band I enjoyed being in was a band called Wellwisher, which is how I met Algernon originally. And I would be, like, crushingly anxious before, like, every show. Like, absolutely every show. And coincidentally would be really wasted every show. And then I realized when I moved to doing the band's I currently do negative space where I basically just like sing or like yell into a microphone and it's like run into some like effect pedals. I've never been nervous once. And people like always ask me like if I get nervous and I don't know what it is, even though it's like a more like person audience facing role or something about it. I've never had like the same anxiety. I don't know if it's because you can fuck up more and like no one will notice. Like <laughs> Yeah, the, the safety net of missing the nuances is always a good thing that helps a lot. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's odd. Evan, what's your secret? Uh, I don't know. I just, I don't think I really have one. That's the greatest secret of all. Immunity. <laughs> Presumably you guys practice a lot, right? Or at least did before a national pandemic. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to go with a hard no. You probably should have. <laughs> cool. I've always felt very prepared for my shows. And I just would always say like, We've done this hundreds of times. So whenever like I would see a bandmate with anxiety, I would just walk up to them and be like, this is what we've done for such a long time. You're also a machine. <laughs> yeah, Mikey's one of the most perfect drummers to exist. Have, I've observed this. But I mean, we've all been doing this. No, totally. <laughs> I agree with you, Mikey. I'm I'm the same. It's it's just like Yeah. Y'all have a lot more going on. No, no, that's not it at all. No, that's no. not it at all. Well, pedals and amps and then like all of the notes. I guess the trick for me really is I'm doing this because I enjoy doing it. I'm doing this because I want to have fun. This is my moment in the sun to enjoy myself. If I have the 30 minutes that I get to have on stage to play music, I'm going to take that time and like live it to the fullest. So to me, it's like, there's no point in worrying about if I'm going to fuck up because I'm definitely going to fuck up. And <laughs> if I fuck up, I'm going to own it and it's fine and I don't care. If I hit some bad notes, I hit some bad notes. It's fucking whatever. It's a moment in time. I just live through it. You know, it's like I just want to enjoy myself and I feel like at least to a point I trusted my ability enough to do a good enough job. Mm. And, you know, that comes with years of playing as well is that you know, I feel like I got to a point where it was just like, I can at least sing without thinking I did a bad job. I practice enough on my own. As a band, we generally practice like once or twice before a show. And like that definitely mm. bothered a lot of people because we were kind of had a rotating cast and there were members who were just kind of like, I don't want to do this if it's like we just practice once or twice before a one-off show and that's yeah. like all we play for six months. Mm -hmm. And like that is kind of what we did. I guess that's my secret. I agree with you, Mikey. That's We've been doing this together, at least the three of us together, we've been doing this since, you know, 2008 or 2009 or That's something. a long time. Yeah, we've been doing this together long enough that it's just like I feel confident in 
my abilities and yours. I'm not worried about it. I mean, that's one yeah. of the great things, in my opinion, about this band is that I can go out on stage knowing that I'm going to fuck up the most out of everyone. And that is <laughs> a great feeling. Yeah, I think it's fair. That, like, Mikey and I are two people who, like, just don't forget our parts. We're always, like, have them at the top of mind. And when we go on stage, we play them the same way mm-hmm. every night. And that's why Evan can just go out there, be the like, a dynamic front man and just have a good time because he knows that if anything goes wrong on his end, everything else is is smooth sailing so <laughs> i mean i flub a dub don't don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not a perfect machine i i don't think you mess do ups, mikey yeah, i don't think i've up. ever seen you make a mistake on the drums in a live show in my life i do, I do all the time you're right dude i've counted off the wrong song that. the biggest show we play with brand new and i start drumming and i can't fucking hear anything and i look at everyone and you're all looking at me and i'm like oh my goodness and you're just like, what? And I'm just like, uh. And then I just like looked at my set list and was like, you know, just felt all the anxiety and tried to count off at the right speed. Probably counted off at the wrong speed. Slowed back down to where we should be. And we just like went on with the right I always found like the bigger shows that I've played with the band I'm in, which aren't like huge, but like definitely bigger than I would normally play. Like they're the ones where I'm like least nervous in a way because like there's almost like less personal interaction with like the person on the other end i'm not playing to like 10 of my friends who might be like hey like what happened with that one part like you know like there's more of a disconnect you know mm, definitely. that's definitely how i felt when we were doing those big shows with brand new mm-hmm. it was like yeah i feel like this is fake there's like four thousand people in front of us and it doesn't feel real like yeah there's way more stakes playing in front of 30 people in a basement than there are playing in front of 4,000 people in a fucking airplane hangar, you know? Presumably, like, you can barely, like, interact with each other at that point, right? Because the stages are so big. So, like, what like what else could go, oh, what yeah. else could go wrong? That like, was, that, yeah, that was the source of some of the most <laughs> awkwardness, too. I can remember early on, like, Evan and I are both people who, like, really need to focus on our voices to, like, be able to hear ourselves and be able to do it. So Evan wouldn't have me in his monitor and I would be like talking to the crowd or making jokes or something. And all of a sudden, Evan would like launch into something else and just like fully talk over me. <laughs> and it was because like we were like a hundred feet from each other. Yeah. Like there was, there was no way for him to even know that I was on mic if he wasn't wearing his glasses. Oh, so <laughs> Such an odd I don't need glasses to see if you're on mic. Come on. <laughs> I only need glasses to drive in the dark. So says my doctor. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Sean, what would you like people to look at that you're working on now? Or what does the future hold for you? Where can people find you? What plugs do you have? Mainly, you can check out Negative Space, which is my main band. That's on Bandcamp. Uh, We have two records that are out on Drunken Sailor Records, which is a punk label out of the UK. I do a radio show called Repetitive Strain, which is on Fred's Radio in London. You can Google that and there's a bunch of shows of that. And it's like just like a mix of sort of weird music. I am going to do a kind of solo tape under the title Vanity Crystal, which should come out this year. And you can also check out the Actung ADK tape, which has my other sort of group merging on it. And I think that's everything. I don't have a personal website at the moment, so I guess just Google everything I've said and it'll come up. <laughs> Thanks for having me as well. Nice to hang out. Yeah, it was nice to catch yeah, up. Yeah, this is an absolute yeah. joy. Yeah, yeah. Really, really nice to see you all. Evan, you want to do the sign-off? I forgot what it is, so it's Mikey's <laughs> job now. Mikey, Mikey, do it. The 
<laughs> no, no, like the actual words we say <laughs> over the closing theme. <laughs> well, mm, <laughs> I did not have that in me right now. You've been listening to the Super Week Super Weekly Supercast. Thank you, Sean, for joining us this week. It's been a journey. Great catching up across yeah, the pond. Thank you, thank you Sean. There uh, we go. <laughs> nailed it. Thanks. Take care, guys. <laughs>